welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Steven Zuber, and Inyash is busy this week, so joining me is our special guest. I'm David Youssef. Uh, you may have seen some of my posts as Bayesian Confused on the subreddit. Well, thanks for coming on, David. Um, yeah, you came to the last uh, local meetup, and it was really cool meeting you, and I'm glad you were in town for it. And uh, you seemed super fucking cool, and I wanted to chat with you. So here we are. I was really glad I could come on. I've been loosely reading the community of rationality stuff for about seven years now. And besides a close friend of mine who got me into it here in Lancaster, I had literally never met anyone else about these subjects. So I couldn't lose the opportunity. Yeah. I don't remember how, I guess, you know, the way we've, I found people in real life with this was, uh, the, HP MOR wrap-up party for when Methods of Rationality concluded. There were those like meetups everywhere for people who wanted to hang out with people on the day the last chapter was released. And uh, there was a somewhat large meeting here because, you know, Inyash was local and he did the, the audiobook podcast. And I was like, this is a lot of fucking fun. Who wants to do this again? And most people have been coming back ever since. So, and then we've been picking up people here and there and that sort of thing. So, um, I mean, that's how I found you guys. I was listening to the podcast, but... I think I read it when Yudkowsky was like originally writing it. And then I stopped for three years because he did. Yeah, right. And then I only picked it up about a year after he finished. Nice. Well, you got to save yourself that that terrible crawl for the last few years where he kind of held us all by the uh, in suspense. One of the things that I've always wanted to discuss with at least a few other people more involved in the community than me are what I consider to be big flaws in instrumental rationality. All right. That sounds like fun. So first off, what's, what's instrumental rationality? Well, as I am aware of it, there are pretty much two different ways of approaching rationality, which is epistemological, which I guess you could call more like theoretical truth seeking and being rational about how you look at data which is good and important and very interesting and things that we should all cultivate in ourselves. But instrumental rationality is about doing what works. And I think as one of the sequences put it, the art of winning. And I want to know why aren't more rationalists trying to use the skills that we've cultivated to actively becoming a force to be reckoned with? Well, first off, well done. You didn't know there'd be a pop quiz. And uh, two, um, yeah, I think there's a lot to dive into there. Like, I'm sure you have more thoughts on that, but I guess I could either start with questions or you can keep going. What do you prefer? Why don't you ask me questions? Because I would rather engage that way. Sure. So my first thought was that, like, my life's been improved a bit and it's, it, you know, you, it's hard to point like a cause. And yet I feel like I've become a clearer thinker and more like explicitly goal oriented person since learning more of this rationality business. And, uh, it's allowed me to like actually focus on what do I want my goals to be and how do I actually get there? Like those aren't questions that I think many people articulate to themselves and actually spend time deliberating on. And I did. And, you know, here I am a few years later and I'm much happier than I was. Um, and then, so like, you know, there, I think there's some anecdotal evidence that my life's a bit better, but like, yeah, why haven't I taken over the world? So um, that sort of leads into my, my open-ended question. Like, what would the world look like if more rationalists were forces to be reckoned with? What would you expect to see that's different? What I would imagine 
is that people would be clamoring to figure out what rationality is. That's what a world where rationalists win looks like. It's a world where being rational is so obviously the better choice that even people who have no interest in the subjects that got a lot of us interested in it, like game theory, Harry Potter fan fictions, <laughs> uh, mathematics, people like we keep talking about raising the sanity waterline. The people that need that the most and who could benefit from that the most are not the people who are going to be convinced by the same things that a majority of this community is convinced by. But if you are, if we were winning in the truest sense and everyone knew like, Hey, if you start doing that rationality stuff, things only go up for you, then everyone would want to do it. And that would do more to raise the sanity waterline than any individual act of propaganda slash campaigning. That's interesting. Like the, the product of like the enlightenment mindset, you know, scientists saying, no, the world is understandable and let's figure it out. Um, that seems to me like a very clear, uh, an awesome thing. You know, the scientists are the ones who actually understand the universe. Um, and yet there aren't a lot of people clamoring to be scientists. Uh, I feel like it, there might be a similar bypass with rationality in that it takes the kind of people who are already like wanting to ask themselves the, the question of how can I be the best um, rather than just like, how do I pay my bills or how do I, you know, make my peers not hate me. Um, so I, I mean, is there, Am I going down the wrong line there, or is there any? Do you, do you I think see you're definitely. I think you're definitely in the right vein. Like a good example of that is, while I have done sales for the last ten years, I'm back in school to try to get a degree in integrated sciences. And one of my role models was actually Richard Feynman, specifically because he wasn't just a scientist. The dude played the bongos. And was really good at it, like was an accomplished musician. And on top of that, he used to date models. Like, I think he did more to make scientists look cool than almost anything else. And that's not something we often want to talk about because we don't want to pretend. We want to pretend we are not influenced by that and that other people are not. But being cool is a way of signaling that not only do you have valuable skills but you have the social understanding to leverage them hmm i can see that yeah Feynman also famously hung out at strip clubs and did like brought his physics books there and stuff guy knew how to have fun um. <laughs> yeah like i think that there's nothing wrong with that but to many rationalists maybe i'm wrong you would probably know better from interacting with more of them but from what i've seen online people tend to view that as manipulative in some way. Whereas I approach it from this Ben Franklin quote, it is better to be seen doing good and being good than just to be good. I may have butchered that a bit. No, I, I, if whether or not that's the exact quote, I think the, the spirit still goes through. Um, and I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to like interpret that, you know, part of it could be, you know, the social esteem that comes with being a good person is also important and shouldn't be forgotten. So like, you know, make your charitable donations public or something instead of just doing it anonymously is maybe the kind of thing he's getting at. 
Um, another thing might be, you know, if you're cool and good and people see that, then they're like, how can I be more like that? Is that more where you're getting? Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know if you listen to a lot of history podcasts, but I browse a bunch of them. And recently, a bunch of them have been focusing on the Roman gladiatorial games. And one of the interesting effects is they had a backlash where they may have actually encouraged more people to become Christians. Because, like, you're a Roman and you decide to go to the games and, oh, there's like 50 Christians that are going to be crucified and or eaten by lions today. But unlike all the other slaves, they're like, I'm happy to be a martyr. And that sounds weird, but you look at them and you're like, well, they have to be doing something right if they could face such a terrible situation with such grace. Like, what do they have that I do not? Yeah, I could think of like another, like more sinister interpretation of that. It's just like, what do I have that they don't that lets me actually be scared of being killed by lions? Like, why are they so dumb? <laughs> could be the opposite side of that coin, right? Um, but like I said, that's, that thing. I mean, definitely, but. When the, some of them are your neighbors, when they're people you've worked with in the past who have been reasonable and functional human beings in every other aspect of their life, you begin to question. No, yeah, you're right. I was being somewhat tongue-in-cheek just trying to entertain opposite <laughs> or alternate hypotheses. But um, Hey, I mean, here's the thing. You might be right. People can be domain stupid. Well, and I think, you know, some of the behavior is probably there, you know, like the ignorance is bliss kind of trope, you know, if you... Or, you know, like, it'd be really easy to be super relaxed and, and carefree if you if we were in the middle of a nuclear crisis. If you thought, like, hey, if we all die, we're all going to be ushered off to, we're all gonna be ushered off to Nirvana anyway. So, like, this is just great news to me. Um, but I wouldn't want that to be, like, that's not the kind of mindset I'd want to be in. Um, you know, I'd, I'd want to be the kind of guy who would try and stop Armageddon so that we don't all die. Uh, but I think I'm ruining the point of where you're coming from, and I think your point is salvageable, aside from my annoying nitpickings. So like, um, <laughs> not at all. I find it enlightening. <laughs> well, I, I think I just, I'm trying to tie this back to like what rationalist, uh, big players would be doing differently or what the average person would be doing differently. Like, I guess. Okay. So I have a few small suggestions for what n rationalists who may not be huge in the community, but want to help it along. So the very first thing is talk about it. People can't know what you're doing right if you don't tell them. So one of the things I try to do is I have a lot of interactions with humans, both at school, like I said, and as a realtor, finding work and dealing with clients and other realtors in my work. And whenever they ask me, like, hey, you seem like you're really put together or that was a really good idea, I always make it a point to say, yeah, I've read these things called The Sequences. It's a really good website called Less Wrong. It's almost like getting a superpower. That's the way I try to sell it. And it sounds like a bit much, but the way I think rationality manifests is the more you know about it, the fewer mistakes you make which isn't sexy when you think about it. It means like it's you, there's very few times you can point to something and say, oh yeah, that was because of rationality. But think about playing a video game in easy mode. There's just less obstacles. Yeah, I think, I mean, 
part of me is, is stuck up on, I guess, like one thing that I don't have any openings to, to pitch it that way because no one ever says that was a really cool idea, Stephen. You seem well put together. So I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that opening. Um, but uh, I'm actually kidding. There's, there's... Half of that is wearing suits. <laughs> Half of that is wearing suits. Well, as a developer, I think I'd stand out if I wore suits, but we'll see. Uh, but um, no, I, I mean, I, I've, I've managed to plug it. You know, I'm getting more confident the last couple of years. And, you know, I think, you know, part of what keeps some people from being super forward with it, you know, aside from like being in a community that would not foster, you know, that kind of thinking or something, but just like more generically, like, uh, you know, telling your coworkers about this stuff that you like is just, you know, if they think it's weird, then, oh, no, you're weird. But I've sort of moved to a point in my life where I don't really care if people think that. So, um, you know, like there was a there was an example at work a couple weeks ago where one of, I've got a team with two other people on it right now. And one of the guys was, I don't know if anyone listening has heard of that stupid debate out there is like, is water wet? Um, and people. Oh, my are, God. Yeah. Right. That makes me so angry. It's, it's, it's kind of annoying and tiresome. But my, you know, I'd heard of this and then this guy brought it up at work and I was like, you know, if people are arguing about this question, you could just not use the word wet and approach the question again. And, you know, you would probably not be confused by the end of your, your two minute conversation. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, think about it. Like, what do you anticipate happening differently if water was wet or not wet? Nothing. Then what's the point of the question? Like if you're asking, you know, if we're just, you know, deliberating what the definition of wet is, then who cares? Like you can argue about dictionary words and, you know, just, just, turn blue in the face complaining about the application to specific domains or not like uh but really just think about like what does, what how did that belief actually make itself worthwhile you know what changes if you believe it's wet versus it's not and if that belief doesn't do anything then who cares and uh i don't know how convinced he was i think he said something about you know getting off my socratic high horse or something um but the uh, one of the, the other guys seemed kind of interested, so I, I slacked out to both of them the article, uh, um, Making Your Beliefs Pay Rent, which is that, that whole mindset of, you know, if your belief isn't doing anything for you in the, uh, the domain of, of expected experimental results, then in what sense is it a real belief anyway? Like, if nothing changes, whether or not it's true or false, then it's not, you know, what's the belief even doing? And if it's not doing anything, kick it out. Um, and so I might have landed there. I also got a coworker hooked on methods of rationality, so we'll see where he is in two weeks. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think talking about it is definitely one thing that many people could do more of, and I'm, I'm certainly doing a bit more of. Um, and you know, I think I don't know. Do we expect? And maybe uh, we can either talk more on that, or I can jump into the next question, which like. Is this the kind of thing that you would advocate for everybody or just like the big players who like want to make a difference? And, and you know, like there's there's one thing to like just, you know, using it quietly for yourself. You know, like uh, I was into like skepticism before I was into rationality. And I didn't really talk about that with people other than like the fact that I didn't buy homeopathic pills. And, you know, if it came up, I had something to say on you know, alternative medicine or uh, ghosts or something. Um, but like it was less of a... Um, it, I don't know. On on one angle, skepticism is more of a negative perspective, like you know, shooting down a bunch of bullshit, which is important. You know, that way you're not wasting all your time and money. Um, but it, there's 
it takes like an additional step and people like probably, probably disagree with me and I'm probably not being charitable to the skeptics, but like it takes, it takes an additional step on top of just debunking to actually like make something useful of that. And, you know, how do I best focus my efforts? Is, I think is more the domain of rationality. On a slight tangential point about the skepticism community, I think the thing that they do incorrectly as far as PR goes is I saw a debate with Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Bill Nye against two creationists, and they brought up a difference between cynicism and skepticism. Cynicism says there's no ghost. Skepticism says there's probably not a ghost, but if you could bring me a ghost, I'd be so excited. Yeah, I can see the distinction, and I, I think that's important. Too often, I think people like Dawkins and Sam Harris come off as cynics when, if you read their other works about the way that science fulfills them, you would see them more as skeptics. And that's why their fan base sees them one way, but everyone outside of it sees it differently. I think Dawkins is a really good example of that, especially. Like, I, I think I mentioned before that my first book of his was The God Delusion, which I thought was really well written. I read it when I was like 16 or 17 or whenever it was somewhat new. And, uh, you know, it was fun and challenging. It was my first, like, real atheist book. Um, but the, the tone overall is, like, negative. You know, he's like, I'm sick of talking about this. This shit's been slowing science down for, you know, ever. And I thought this would be done with like 30 years ago. But here we are still talking about whether or not, you know, humans have a common ancestor with chimps. And it's 20 whatever year the book came out. Um, but then his book, uh, Unweaving the Rainbow, is the exact opposite. Um, it's, you know, if if the God delusion is about what bugs him, Unweaving the Rainbow is about what gets him out of bed in the morning. And it's the wonder and enchantment of science. The idea that through comprehending the universe, it becomes way more beautiful and way more interesting, more interesting than, than just sitting around and imagining how it could be ever, than anything you could possibly imagine. Like the way the universe actually is, is exhilarating and fun. Um, and that's, you know, I think maybe Dawkins is more popular for the God delusion than Unweaving the Rainbow, and so you're right. Like people from the outside see him as this curmudgeon in the old, uh, let's not even get into Dawkins' Twitter uh, reputation. Um, but uh, hey, I like Nassim Taleb, and I don't agree with everything Jordan Peterson does, but I like a lot of it. And honestly, both of them are kind of insane on Twitter. So I just don't engage with that medium anymore. I think something about the format makes smart people stupid. I think so too. I tried Twitter for like a summer, and I got into some debate with a guy about like uh, he was, I'm assuming, some sort of men's rights activist or something, and he was talking about like what a big deal male circumcision was. And I think we were talking, like he changed the topic from female genital mutilation. And I was like, yeah, that's not cool. You know, it's less cool, like getting the whole thing fucked up. Right. Um, you know, I use the analogy of like, you know, getting the end of your pinky cut off versus getting your left hand cut off. You know, if, if we're, yes, both are bad and we shouldn't do either, but if we're focusing our efforts on one problem, it's, you know, one's clearly a bigger deal. Um, but, you know, with 100, now it's 280, but back then it was 140 characters, you can't make a nuanced point, and you can't be perceived to be making one, so it's just, like, people shouting at each other. It has, like, the same kind of bullshit as, like, a Facebook comment, but, like, more anonymity and distance. So, like, uh, I, I don't think, yeah, I agree. It's not the best platform to learn anything nuanced on. It's a good platform for, like, what are the celebrities I'm doing up to? Where are they touring? You know, if I'm at a conference, you can follow those hashtags or something, but... Um, 
sorry, I'm getting uh, sidetracked. Where were we? Um, Curmudgeonly, science versus cynicism, skepticism. Um, yeah, I think. Oh, I do remember. You were asking if we should, if I'm advocating these things for the more prominent people in the community or for the average person. And honestly, I'm advocating this for the average person because the people who are already popular in the community have a kind of social momentum going for them at this point. And it's, that's something I've actually like studied how to generate pretty thoroughly, but we can talk about that a little later, but I think it's more important on the lower level. I don't want to say lower, but on the more grassroots level. What's more important specifically just having like your average Joe being your average Joe or Jane being more active in uh, talking about and seeming awesome for doing this sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But like, here's a question I've been considering for the last like 48 hours or so. Robin Hansen worked on prediction markets, correct? Yeah. And have you read the book Super Forecasting? I've not, but I'm familiar with it. But for those of so, us who aren't, go ahead and summarize it. Uh, pretty much, uh, I, I feel terrible now. I cannot remember the author's name. But he was using prediction markets with essentially pseudo money to make people capable of making predictions on everything from Arctic ice melting to stocks to national takeovers. And what he discovered is most people, I think it's like 60%, are about as good as a monkey throwing darts at a dartboard. <laughs> you mean with, with about, fake money or real money? I mean, I believe there was some tie-in. Like, they had some kind of point system, so people felt invested. Okay. And about... I think it was 35% were pretty good. They were, like, better than average, like 70%. But there was, like, 5% of people who were super predictors. And if having a working theory of the world is having theories and philosophies that pay out rent, as we were talking about, like beliefs that do help you predict the future, then being a super predictor or having access to one gives you the more accurate map. Like, by default, you are more rational because you have a better working map than someone who d has all the same skills as you, but a less accurate map. Well, They've discovered that you can do some daily practices to help increase your predictiveness score. I believe there is like a cap. So if you're truly terrible at it, you can get better. But the fact that you can improve it at all should be something every rationalist should be interested in. And if we all did that and pooled our money, which I'm sure there's a cryptocurrency that could allow, <laughs> why wouldn't like, why shouldn't rationalists start their own stock funds that actually use correct data that everyone else seems to ignore because it's socially unconventional. Like we could just start winning economically. That's a good question. I guess uh, I don't have a good answer for that, but I can turn that around. Why aren't you doing that, David? <laughs> uh, my personal goal is I am working to mix my real estate with robotics and permaculture to create 
like to become a land developer that makes resilient anti-fragile systems and honestly i am human and this goal is as big as i am capable of doing so i've invested most of my energy in this and otherwise trying to be a sane person mild success at both well for i mean it's it's a it's a journey right it's on a quick step um and you you know what you're right like i could if anyone out there has the information that could help me get started or can point me in the right direction, I'll do my best to try. Like you're, it's worth doing, but it's just something I find weird because I don't think I'm that clever. And this community has a lot of very smart people in it. Like, can you imagine a rationality hedge fund that just would in a matter of time using prediction markets and enforced contracts, not only be ethical, but, automatic and make huge dividends maybe not huge but pretty good ones that's a really good idea uh yeah i haven't thought about that before uh you're convincing me fairly quickly that there's low-hanging fruit here that we haven't grabbed i guess that's not particularly low-hanging but uh i that's a good way to put it like i think that there's a lot of things that rationalists could do both individually that are low energy and that we could do as a community because we have such a good and diverse skill set. And if we're going to be a little bit flatteringly honest, a lot of us tend to be above average in more than one skill. Like we could diffuse the work for a lot of very ambitious projects pretty easily. Like I'm very astounded and it makes my heart glad when I see all the work the effective altruism community has done. Yeah, I agree. And that's, you know, I don't, that didn't really come explicitly out of the rationality community, but it's been highly adopted there. And it's just one of those, like, hey, here's this norm that doesn't make any sense. Let's let's challenge the parts that we can, like the taboo against bragging, um, and say, look, among our community, it'll be okay to, like, broadcast charitable donations and where they're going. And, you know, to make a public giving what you can pledge or something. Um, and then, you know, that way... You know, a real effective altruist, if, if they posted on Facebook and they're like, yep, here's the three places my donations went, they'd be receptive to feedback and be like, you know what, number two, say like the uh, the pink ribbon breast cancer fund or whatever, you know, that's kind of a waste of money. If you're, if you're even if, like if your goal is, you know, reducing incidences of breast cancer, you don't want to give it to the, I can't remember the, the, the person behind the pink ribbon campaign, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, I do. I think it's like 95 cents to the I dollar, 90 cents to the dollar goes towards more marketing for the pink ribbon. And uh, so it's like even your own goal there of wanting to, to stop breast cancer, you're not even doing that effectively. Um, so uh, just having an openness to that sort of, you know, because that's a pretty intense criticism to give somebody like, hey, you know what, you just wasted your, char your charity money. It's a pretty hard thing to, for most people to, to stomach, I think. But the, the EA community has worked to uh, make it, I think, more acceptable to like discuss where charity money is going and which ones are best in a, in a way that doesn't make it seem like you're a pretentious philanthropist, right? I think a big part of what they've done correctly is pull on the heartstrings in the right way, where they're not trying to scam you out of your money and they're n like precisely the opposite. They're trying to prevent you from getting scammed. In a way, they almost act like a consumer protection bureau, but for NGOs and nonprofits and stuff. Yeah, I like that. And that is something that people often don't want to admit that they need, 
because it feels paternalistic. But in a society as complex as ours, with all these moving pieces, nobody can be an expert in everything. You need like someone to protect you from the worst human follies. Yeah, I mean that's that's why I like the um, you know GiveWell organization that uh, you know they do all the legwork for us. And so if you're if you're the kind of person who's ready to ask yourself, okay, I've got X amount of money to give this year. How do I do the most good with it? Well, somebody's already done that homework for you. You don't have to go from the ground up and figure this out. Um, they apparently, the two people who started that, I forget their names, uh, they had a really hard time getting initial data. Um, you know, there was like kickback from charities saying, you're trying to steal our, our, our secrets to like sell to our competitors or something, which is a really weird mindset to take if your like, goal is, you know, helping the world. Like what, you want to help someone else help it better than we are? Um, <laughs> but just like there, there weren't like statisticians on hand to, you know, give them numbers. Like, you know, how many people are you saving with this? Like what, how could you even ask that? Um, so thankfully, you know, since these aren't easy questions, people just to call up an answer. They've already done some of the legwork for us. If you, uh, you know, just want to, you know, maximize your good from your charity dollar. And that works. Like, I think this isn't something I think can be fixed per se, but, Maybe I can bring a little bit of awareness to it. A lot of times, I don't think this is even a rationalist thing. I think this is a human thing. When we notice someone has a belief that is in error, either it is epistemologically incorrect, the sun does not rotate around the earth, or it's practically incorrect, they should not have turned left, now it's going to take you guys 15 minutes longer. And our first instinct when we see that, I believe, is often to pointed out in a matter of fact way, but the same way that humans are really bad at like, have you ever heard if two people are punching each other, it just gets worse and worse over time. Cause we're really bad at judging like how much damage we are dealing in relation to ourselves. Because so every time you get punched, you'll just punch a little bit harder than you have to. And the other person will feel it. Words are the same way. So you should soften everything you try to say that's a correction by about 50%. That's interesting. And you mean like a conscious effort on top of like, all right, I thought about this. I'm doing this nicely to like stop yourself again and say, how can I make that even more palatable? Yeah. Like ask yourself, how can I frame this for this person to understand that the only reason I'm even bothering to bring it up is because I want their life to be better. See, partly that's why I just like hanging out with other nerdy people like me because, you know, if I'm driving with a friend and I take the wrong turn, they're going to say, you took the wrong turn. It's 15 minutes faster if you go this way. Um, and I'll be like, great, thanks for letting me know. Um, rather than, you know, them having to say, you know, I know you're just doing your best and this and that. I can't, I'm, I think, being uncharitable to your point, but um, I, I'm, just, I'm thinking of uh, um, Robin Hansen was just on Sam Harris's podcast and he talked about, uh, and I'm paraphrasing poorly, something along the lines of like enforcing norms or having communities that enforce the, the right kinds of norms. So like, you know, we talked about the EA group before, you know, if, uh, if I go to like, if my family was giving to charity and I pointed out how bad most of the charitable donations were, it would be received poorly because they're not effective altruists. Um, but like it, having a community that has norms that like make you stronger and better is like one of the most uh, like reliably good moves you can do. And I think that's why I like the little uh, rationality community in Denver was um, 
you know, being challenged and proven wrong is like exciting and fun rather than like feeling like you're being beaten down and conceding a point you'd rather not concede. Actually, that's one thing I think the rationality community gets right. That is something I noticed a lot at the meetup, which really encouraged me. Just pe- people being people, less attached to their beliefs, like as part of like their personality or their their personhood, and yeah, like being told you're wrong is n- almost never a bad thing to a rationalist. It's a thing that incites curiosity. Like, can you please explain to me more? And that gives a level of mental resilience, and it's confident. Like, I don't. I think rationalists should actually play that part of their personality up because it shows such a level of confidence in who you are. Like, I can afford to be wrong about this. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I like that. And I and, you know, not only does it look good, but like it also makes you just feel good. You know, if I if I'm doing something wrong at work and someone shows me some faster, better way to do something, I'm like, oh, thanks for saving me the time and trouble. Um, and if I'd known about that keyboard shortcut two weeks ago, I probably would have saved myself like 30 minutes by now every time that I go to the tab bar and, or the task bar and do it there or something, right? Um, and those are just like little things where, you know, if you point out, hey, you're doing this wrong to some people, they'll take it poorly. But uh, if your attitude about being wrong is different, that like you're not, I think that the other thing that I, I think I'd be willing to, to put out there that the rationality community is doing right, I think it's closely tied to this, is making an explicit distinction between uh, like you and your beliefs. Um, you know, your beliefs aren't you. And if you're wrong about something, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Like, I don't think anyone really believes that, but they act like they do. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can choose a politically charged topic and, you know, gun control or, or drug regulation or something. Um, and they suddenly like, you know, if they're presented with challenging evidence, they get, you know, their heart rate goes up, they get stressed, they get they get upset, they get angry. And uh, that's not, I think, the right way to approach being wrong, right? Um, and it might not even be being wrong, it's just having a difficult conversation. And the ability to calmly look at this and say, okay, you know what? I'm not wrong. My belief might be wrong. Just, just having that different framing makes you much more open to being able to be receptive to that sort of stuff. I think that that is also a side effect of trying to integrate Bayesian reasoning, which is something we talked about when I was in Denver a little bit. But I think trying to actively like ask myself, okay, I just saw something that contradicts what I believe. Does this snowflake of evidence move my belief meter one way or the other about this topic? Because it should, even if it's like 0.01%. I should be willing to acknowledge it was at least that convincing. And that makes you humble because you can't really have a binary belief if you do that. You always have to keep the possibility that you're wrong in your head. And then anytime you see something that contradicts you, it's not an attack. It's just something that weighs slightly more on the other side. Yeah. And I think just like, you know, like you said, just one of the byproducts of that is that you know, a counterpiece of evidence isn't this, you know, hammer blow to yourself. It's just, uh, you know, if your beliefs aren't binary and you can accept evidence and then, you know, it's not just to accept evidence. Be like, okay, cool. That was, that was interesting. And then just keep believing what you believed if enough evidence of enough counter evidence shows up, but to actually be able to, to switch and say, okay, cool. I'm now leading this way. Um, yeah, I, 
and not feeling very articulate. I feel like I was onto something and I lost it. So we can we can keep going. Sorry. We can move on if you want. The thing I'm kind of contemplating now is if I'm going to advocate this, what are some practical suggestions? Yeah, no, I wasn't meaning to, I, I wasn't meaning to move on. I just meant to find some way to segue away from me losing my train of thought. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, practical ways. I think we just did. <laughs> well, practical ways to uh, implement this. And you already put forward the idea of just, like, talking about it, you know, when, when you can, to the extent of not being obnoxious. Um, I wonder, like, for most people, though, that doesn't click. Like, most of my friends and family know the kind of stuff I'm interested in, but they don't find it compelling themselves. It's just, like, it takes a certain kind of, I use the word nerd endearingly, um, it takes a certain kind of nerd to, like, find the stuff really exciting and interesting, right? Um, you know. Well, you should, okay, so let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Imagine if over the next year and a half, you became one of the top 10% healthiest people that you knew, you double or tripled your income, your relationships and your personal life all increased in both quantity and quality. And let's say on top of it, you got another awesome pet. If all that happened in such a short frame of time, it might not get everyone in your immediate family and social circle interested but I think it would probably get a good number of them to ask you, like, hey, what what happened? That's pretty amazing. Hmm. But each of the things I just mentioned, if, like, the self-help community is full of a lot of trash, but you don't have that much literature without some gems. And they can get you some amazing results, especially the people who are a lot more data-driven. For example, Tim Ferriss... Uh, writer of the four hour work week and uh, not necessarily a founding member, but definitely a big advocate of the quantified self movement has a section on meta learning where he pretty clearly details how he goes about not just learning a new skill, but organizing his schedule so that he can master it and understand 80% of it in the most efficient way possible. And, like, that's something that's free online. Every rationalist should have that skill set as quickly as possible. Now I'm feeling dumb for having not read that. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, here's the thing. I honestly forgive the rationality community that, for that because his books sound like the cheesiest things in the world. The 4-Hour Workweek, the 4-Hour Body, and the 4-Hour Chef. I, he does have two new ones, but I don't remember their titles. But to be fair to him... He got those titles in pretty much the most rational way I ever heard of. He wrote like 10 different book titles he could use. He made Google ad uh, plays for each of them. And that led to like the same website. And he just counted at the end of the month which one got the most clicks and used those for his names. That's a pretty awesome approach. And you know, it was brilliant. And he explains it in the book. And I just couldn't help but giggle. That's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to to his credit, like you're right, the the cover at the bookstore, you know, looks like another one of those random like, oh, here's how to like turn your life around in three easy steps. Um, but I've heard the guy talk on podcasts and stuff and he's very articulate. And I think he he's definitely coming from a place that makes sense. So it's weird that I wasn't compelled to check him out more. I mean, I have the four hour work week. I just haven't read it, which I don't know what that says about me. Finally, I'm good. Um, but yeah, like the, I think, the ability to, to pick up new skills quickly, um, 
is the kind of thing that you can cultivate. You know, like it's probably a lot like prediction or super predictors, right? Where you know some people are good at it, some people really suck at it, but whoever you are, you can get better, and that's super valuable. The returns aren't are so amazing, even if you put in minimal investment. I think that's what always kind of made me confused about why there wasn't more interest in it. Because let's say you can only get 15% of the stuff that Tim Ferriss suggests that you can do. If I got a 15% efficiency improvement in anything that's like mechanical, I'd probably be hired immediately as like a lead engineer on whatever project that is for the rest of my life. Like if I could design an engine that was 15% more efficient, I might win a Nobel prize. Well, that's different than being a 15% more efficient person, right? Which, which way is this? Yeah. Being a 15% more efficient person is way more valuable. I see. Yeah. Because if one of those that, if one of the things you become more efficient in is learning how to become efficient, the returns are not just multiplicative, they're exponential over time. And they're small compared to each day before and each day after it. But from an outside perspective, it can be pretty staggering. Yeah, that's interesting. By the way, I'm not affiliated with Tim Ferriss in any way. Um, I will say that his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, is one of the things that motivated me to become a realtor because it gives me a very good way of looking at how time factors into wealth. So it's been very good to me personally, but the results may vary. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that should be the grain of salt with any piece of advice, right? Um, you know, everyone's circumstances are a little different and one should be cautious of giving and receiving advice. Um, but I, you know, again, having not read the book, I'm just going to assume that it's about as generic as possible and it's, it's approachable that way. So, that, I mean, um, you know, it's obviously popular not because it, it targets, you know, a very small demographic of people, but because it's approachable. Yeah. All right. You've inclined, you've, you've, you've uh, motivated me to read that book. I will have read it soon. That sounds really cool. It's pretty easy read. And yeah, it's a short book. Uh, yeah. And it's like 10 years old at this point. So a lot of these specific tips and tricks aren't great, but here's a good one that's immediately paid dividends in my life. Most people are addicted, especially at work, to checking their emails and their communications. But we all know the data says that every time you shift your focus, you have to spend some mental energy like refocusing on the original subject. So just batch your emails. I only answer emails twice a day. Immediately made my life much easier, reduced stress levels. And that was one of the most simple suggestions I've ever gotten. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, I, that sounds like a low effort input with a, with a good dividend at the end. I, uh, I need to read this book. Um, you know, like I know I'm aware of tools that like, uh, like block your browser for certain times of the day, however long you want from like visiting Facebook or Twitter or something. Um, like, I don't know, I can't think of the names, but something like don't distract me or something. And yeah. that way you have to specifically go in and disable it if you want to like, allow yourself to indulge your your desire to go on Facebook or something. And that additional step keeps people kind of in check. You know, it's just uh, little things that you can do to to enhance your productivity. And then boom, suddenly you're more productive. And you're getting done with work faster because you're, you're wasting less time re-engaging. 
man, if it's, if it's that easy, we are missing out. That's sort of, maybe other rationalists have read more stuff than I have. Uh, in fact, that's definitely true in many cases, but. It's not about the reading, though. That's, like, kind of the thing. Like, I believe a lot of people have read this. It's a community I believe is probably tangential, but overlapping also. It's that I wonder how many low-hanging fruit, as you've put it, are there for the taking that even I haven't noticed and why we as a community don't actively try to like foster more of that. Like if we had a Wikipedia for like, Hey, if you've decided that you want to run a triathlon, well, we as rationalists have decided to look at all of the data like the ones of us who are health focused decided on their own to build a repository of health data and give you like both the most practical advice that they know that works and a good amount of the research. And I'm sure that's only a few people in the community. We only need like five or six people who are experts in a field to at least get you a good start. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, like a handful of, of small things like that have come up, but uh, you know, like one, for example, was, um, MetaMed, which was around for a few years, and it was basically, uh, I don't think it ever really took off. I think they ended up being, uh, like, losing funding and uh, shutting down before they were able to, like, lower the cost entry. But it was, like, you would pay, I don't know, three or four or five thousand dollars, and this handful of, of medical trained people, whether or not they were doctors or not, I can't remember, and you send, you send forward, like, your medical info and your problem, and, you know, if you have a, uh, a problem that's difficult to diagnose or something and their, their thing was like, all right, we're going to compile all this. And we're basically going to go house on this uh, house, the doctor show, and we're going to figure out what's going on. Um, and I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, I think I heard about that. Uh, Yudkowsky mentioned that he tried it out to figure out, like, how to treat his sleep disorder. Um, if you've read Methods of Rationality, uh, Harry has that, like, 26-hour sleep cycle. Um Yudkowsky apparently has like a 24.25 hour sleep cycle, um, which so every, it's like it's an extra 15 minutes. Yeah, which doesn't sound too bad, except for you think like, all right, two weeks later and suddenly, you know, you're, you're off by half a day. So um, oh. this, you know, this is why like a lot of less wrong posts are at like 3 a.m. Uh, so uh, it t- suddenly it all makes sense. Yes, this is, you know, tired guy at the computer. No, but uh, the. I think I think the answer was uh, like modafinil before bed, and then like long release modafinil as well. So like you're getting hit with it throughout the night, which sounds super obvious. Um, you know what? This is a book that I should have read before we talked about this. Uh, you guys just came out with a book on this subject. Um, the one of like, why aren't we hitting more of these like easy to hit points? Um, inadequate equilibria. Uh, is his new? Oh, I haven't read it either. It's on my Kindle. Yeah, I, you're right. We both should have read it. Shame on both of us. Yeah, we'll, we'll read it and get back to it. But I have read the first chapter, and he talks about how his wife has uh, severe seasonal affective disorder, and the like. Sun lamps weren't really helping, and they were, you know, considering rather extreme measures of, of treating this by, like, you know, moving to South America for the summer, for the winters. Um, but you know, he's thinking like, look, the sun cures her seasonal affective disorder. That's why she doesn't have it in the summer. So, you know, this is clearly just like a light problem. Why if we just got $600 worth of light bulbs and strung them up in the apartment and it's bright as the summer in here. And it seems to have, you know, that small investment seems to have paid off really well. Like she's apparently doing better. Um, 
And his thing was like, so why wasn't this obvious answer in the medical literature yet? And if it wasn't in there yet, should I just conclude before trying that someone's looked into this and dismissed it or it doesn't work? So, and I haven't read the rest of the books. So I'm not sure what the general advice actually is on how to approach problems. But like, there are going to be cases where like you look for an answer, there's not one out there, or you rather you think of an answer, you go to check and see if there's anything to it and there's no data on it. And so do you think, okay, well, I'm either on something that the medical community has never thought of before or, oh, you know, I guess it must not mean anything. So when, when do you actually spend the time to invest in your, your idea rather than letting the lack of data out there um, stop you? Uh, I don't have the answer. I think it's more of an investment thing. Like, if it only, like, if for something as big as what Yudkowsky's saying, my limit would be a thousand bucks. I know that sounds really crass to say, but if I can't make any real progress within a thousand dollars or and like a few weeks of thinking really hard, I probably won't be making any progress. But like, that's still an amount of work and time and a normal person can do. Like, that's the way I think about it. If it's really important, you should be willing to invest more time and money into figuring it out yourself. But even if it's not that important, if you can find out or disprove it yourself, a lot of times with less than a hundred bucks, that doesn't cost you much time or energy. I know, right? Uh, I mean, my my couple examples from my life are much smaller, but there's been a couple times where, you know, I'm 15, 20 bucks away from a rather large improvement. Um, I had a couple examples, and the only one that I can think of is really stupid and pointless. But <laughs> when I first got an Xbox 360, and I'd switched up from like the GameCube, and then before that, like N64, and it had like the red, white, and yellow uh, cords to plug into the TV. And the Xbox 360 had five, and I was like, "Oh, so that's the HD, and that's why it looks so good." Um, what I didn't know until I had this thing for like two or three years was that uh, I'm a $15 HDMI cable away from getting real HD. And I'm like, I, I mean, <laughs> I missed, I missed out on, uh, you know, again, the opportunity to like play Skyrim in higher resolution or something pointless, but just the idea that like, I didn't know that there was a problem there that I could solve so easily. And so I think part of the challenge is like figuring out what actually is a problem that you can address. Uh, not just like, all right, here's my problem. Now let's go for it. But like asking myself the right Noticing questions. that there's like noticing that there's a problem or inefficiency there at all. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I've bought a lot of old crappy cars in my life and the first thing I do with them now is uh, get a new uh, distributor cap and spark plug cables and spark plugs and it runs a lot better. And that, that's like a total of like $60 worth of parts and, you know, maybe half an hour worth of work. And uh, it's, it's such a low investment. The car runs like it's 10 years younger. Um, you know, I, I sort of have like this, it's not really a petrifying fear. It's more just like this nagging concern that I'm going to look back in like a year and be like, oh man, there's only $20 that you could have spent to make your life a lot better. And so I'm wondering, you know, this is, I guess, not quite related, or this is related, but not the same thing. I guess, how to identify those things. That is a lot harder. Um, well, cause mostly you don't know what you don't know, right? I, yeah. And those are, by definition, black swan events. Like that That's what Nassim Taleb's book, The Black Swan, is about. Events that are not only things you didn't predict, but could not have predicted. And the best answer he's able to come up with after three books is, 
you develop anti-fragile strategies because you know that given enough time, more of these black swan events and issues will come up. So you just make all your plans based around a world where you know these things are going to happen and surprise you. So you're optimally in like a perfect way of implementing it. You would develop your life such that almost every surprise, good or bad, made your life better, but couldn't make your life too much worse. Hmm. Can you give a, an example? I haven't read his books. So I'm going to be tooting my own horn here a little bit, but uh, on your last episode, I commented on the Reddit because you guys talked about cryptocurrencies and I'm a little bit more negative than Scott Alexander. I would have given the rationality community a D or maybe even an F because I believe that the rationality community was smart enough to immediately see the value of blockchains and cryptocurrencies. Even if they didn't know Bitcoin in particular was going to be the big hit, they were smart enough to realize this was a revolutionary set of ideas. And if they really believed that, they should have made their beliefs pay rent and gone out and bought $20 of each cryptocurrency when they first started. And you would have known that you would have lost money on most of those cryptocurrencies. Because, like, the example he gives in his book is if you were a person in 1999 and you had $1,000 and you did some research and you're like, you know what, the next big thing on the Internet is going to be search engines. We need to figure out how to look through all this stuff. You don't know which company to bet on, right? There's AOL. There's AltaVista. What are some other ones? I kind of forget. Ask Jeeves. Yeah, you don't know which one of those is going to succeed, but you know probably one of them is going to make it big. So you put in 100 bucks into the 10 that you feel are most likely to succeed when they're first starting out. You're throwing seeds essentially into the ground and seeing where it ends up being fertile. Now, 100 bucks, so 1,000 bucks total, is like a chunk of change. That's serious. But in any one company, $100, win or lose... That's like, you know, it hurts. And if you can't afford it, don't do it. But for most people, it's not going to kill you. So you know that you're probably going to lose most of it. We only need one of them to be a disproportionate success, not only to make up all your money, but to get 10x returns. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's I'm sorry, finish your, your thing. Oh, I was going to say that the remainder of that post was pretty much saying that I'm giving myself a C minus because while I do have two and a half Bitcoins and I am still sitting on them, but uh, while I still have them, I didn't really do what I said either. Like I should have gone through the effort of buying Litecoin and even Dogecoin and all the other ones, but I did not do that because it was too much of a hassle at the time. So I really just got lucky. I didn't, I wasn't actually rational there or anti-fragile. I was just lucky and in, in the right place. I did read your uh, your comment on the subreddit, but I didn't reply. Eggs. I don't know a lot about uh, cryptocurrencies, um, and I felt like more it was something that you know I should come to handle. But then I also knew you and I'd be talking, so um, I did read your your comment though. And I think you know my uh, my takeaways. You know, part of it like I was able to give myself a pass, and that I didn't care about Bitcoin until like I don't know maybe five years ago. Um, 
And I could have gotten in then, but I guess I was super broke back then, so it doesn't, you know, that's my other, like, way to wave it off. But just, like, in general, um, it's the kind of thing that, and, you know, in the rationalist community, too, there were people, uh, and like we talked about on the, that episode, uh, Gwern, on the, in the, like, the, the comments and posts and less wrong, was saying, guys, I think this is going to take off. It's going to be awesome. We should all look into this. And then, lo and behold, it did explode. And uh, I think that the Machine Intelligence Research Institute got some huge amount of funding because uh, some percentage of, of early adopters of, of Bitcoin were less wrongers, and they, uh, some of them scored big. And it's like... That is reassuring. Yeah. And so I think uh, Miri's funded pretty heavily from that, which is kind of cool. Um, and I just went out today with a friend uh, who I'm not sure how much he made, but he didn't like his job. He was working for Solar City, selling solar panels. Um, and I've heard that working for an Elon Musk company is kind of like challenging because I think that his mindset is that like everyone finds work as easy as he does. Um, but he, I'm going to put in 80 hours because I'm Elon Musk and I don't run on human food. Yeah, for him, it's just like, hey, if I work 80 <laughs> hours, I can get done twice as fast as my competitors. Not like, where am I going to find the energy, energy to work for 80 hours a week? Um, but anyway, so this friend, he made a, he made a, I'm not sure how much he made, but he made enough to quit his job. And he, he liquidated some of his crypto and he says he's good for at least six months. And he's still got stuff, you know, in the, uh, in the market. So, like, he actually did capitalize he walked the walk and it paid off yeah i i find it interesting like eliezer's reply to that was basically there are you know we can't invest in everything that has a one percent chance of working um ah that's where i disagree you totally can because if you only invest like a small amount in each of them if it's purported gain is over like x 1000 then it's worth it. Like, yeah, put in a dollar and every 1% chance, if there's a chance that you're going to get a thousand or $10,000 back. Yeah. I mean, I think with the case of crypto, that certainly lines up, but like other opportunities, you know, the entry cost is often more than, than more than a dollar, you know, because you can buy in for whatever fraction of a coin you want, but you can't say like, uh, attend a class or, um, move cities or something. I guess moving is probably a bigger deal, but like, you know, there are other small things that you can do that might pay off really big. Um, I mean, fuck it, buying scratch off tickets. I think one in three at least gives you your money back, and one in five I think gives you back double your money. Um, those numbers, numbers might be slightly off, but uh, I don't think one in a hundred gives you a thousand dollars, but maybe one in five hundred. Um, so, I guess I guess those odds are lower, and crypto had reasons to work that weren't pure chance. Okay, so did you ever see the Julia Galef video where she goes through like a visual explanation of Bayes' theorem? You know, I just found that last night. I emailed it to somebody. Um, the only one I had seen was like her one where she talks about it. I haven't seen the visual representation one yet, or if I have, I don't remember it. Uh, she breaks down the math to this really good multiplication of. What are, like, how likely, she uses the example of, like, you see a person who's shy, what's the likelihood he's a math PhD versus, like, a business student? So you're like, okay, math PhDs are 10 times more likely to be shy, so it's 10 to 1, but there's, like, 100 business students for every one math PhD, and you just multiply down. So I would think of it in a similar way. 
if your goal when playing the lotto is to win it big, like win, I don't know, 13 million or whatever the big prize is. But so that's your possible reward. But your odds of winning are one in 45 million. Then you should only invest 50 cents. Right. Like, ticket costs you should dollars, never invest. Yeah. In, yeah. So then it's just not worth it for you. Yeah. And like I said, too, I think uh, there, there were people making noises that like crypto was going to be a bigger deal. And no one can make those same sounds about uh, the lottery, right? No one's saying this is the best use of your money. At least no one worth listening to. No one who doesn't work for the lottery. Yeah. And that's why uh, I, in general, and Nassim Talib tend to recommend... Uh, I talk about us like we know each other. That's not true at all. But um, You guys are chums. That's cool. why I... Yeah. That's why I agree with him that you should be looking for domains that are pretty new because you can still get good returns. Like the opposite is a very fragile return. So a fragile idea would be to look like a company that has had steady growth that is above average because the best case scenario for them is they continue to do steady growth. The worst case scenario is because this is unusual, there's something wrong here and it will collapse. Like Enron seemed like a really good investment. They had like above average returns for their shareholders for years, but they, they had no positive shocks. Like any shock to that could only hurt them. That's interesting. Yeah. I, um, you, you mentioned the same books when last time we were hanging out and I really should read some, I'll start with black Swan. Um, and what's interesting is that I know that, that that's a book kind of on like the quote required reading list for rationalists. And yeah, it seems like people are still missing the points. You know, it's one thing to just read it, but it's another to like actually do something kind of like maybe the 40 hour work or the four hour work week. Right. And, you know, even like the sequences and stuff too, right? Like you can get through and you can learn a bunch of trivia, but like actually putting a little work and getting there is an additional step that you don't get from just knowing the stuff. And I think people are intimidated by the idea of conceptualizing themselves as perfect rationalists because we know we can't be. But what you can do is, have you read Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow? Yeah, Thinking by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. So he posits that you only have a limited amount of energy per day to like essentially do your really good thinking. And most of the time you're running on system one instinct, right? Right. So system one was your kind of quick intuitive responses to problems or questions that you face. And system two was your thoughtful, deliberative one that you have to actively engage. System one goes automatically. System two is one where you have to stop and think. And you can only do that so many times per day. It's basically the point of the book. And they talks a lot about heuristics so, and biases. That's a great book. Yeah. So what that means is that even the best rationalist with the best diet and the best like procedure for getting energy and the best nootropic stack probably is only rational for about one fourth of their day. Like actually engaging in a rational life. So your goal should be to use those moments when you have downtime, like a downtime day, to develop systems around you that are designed rationally so that you can operate in your like system one thinking and have that do most of the work. Right. So the, you know, if you can only spend 25% of your time actually thinking hard, then you 
try to spend some of that time cultivating your, your automatic system to be less stupid and to let your system to know when it needs to kick in, um, which is where like knowing about the biases helps a lot because you can train your system one to like raise a flag. It's like, oh, this is a situation where uh, the availability, her availability heuristic might kick in. Um, what do you think, system two? And kind of pass it off that way. Um, sorry, where were you going with that? No, that's very similar. I was thinking more like ground practical level. Like, here's a good example. I am trying to get a little bit healthier because I gain a lot of weight. I sit down a lot through the day and it's something I can work on. Now, if I just leave myself throughout the week, I'm going to succumb to the lowest, like the lowest energy state, whatever is most available. So what I've done is in the last like weekend, I've done a lot of pre-cooking and got a bunch of stuff done. So now, even when I'm not acting, I don't have my full rational energy at me. I don't even have the opportunity to act badly. Nice. Yeah, I like that. I'm doing something similar where um, there's a gym at my work. So I, I, like, I also have a gym at my apartment, but I've used that like 10 times since I moved here. So... My, my thing is, all right, I'm not going to let myself go home till I go to the gym. And then that way, like going to, you know, sitting down and relaxing isn't even really an option. So it's just like pre-committing and uh, forcing yourself to do stuff um, to make those good choices so that later when you're feeling lazy, you, you don't have the opportunity to indulge that laziness. Um, that sounds like a Tim Ferriss style life hack. It kind of is. And I don't think that he has any like grand life answers but if i were to advocate for any one person who really gets how to apply instrumental rationality it would probably be him like i don't think he's ever heard of the phrase but that's what all of his books come down to like how can i in the most energy efficient manner go after the goals i want and I mean, that's that sort of brings us back. I realized we've been on kind of a digression. I wanted to, to talk more about, like, the initial stuff you raised. So, um, like, the kind of thing, um, things that the rationality community isn't doing well. Um, and one of them, I think you said, was, like, not marketing yourself well, which might be a way to paraphrase it. Um, another was, like, not actually achieving, like, not setting goals and achieving them. Like, maybe many people are, but their goals aren't ambitious for as smart as they as they say they are, right? Is that an uncharitable way to put it, or is that just a quick paraphrasing that works? No, I think that's about correct. So did you have anything else on that list? Because I didn't want to... Uh, I know we went down a couple rabbit holes, and that's something that this show just does, but um, <laughs> trying try to be mindful. Uh, so what else were you thinking? Call there? me the Cheshire Cat. I'm all about rabbit holes. Perfect. <laughs> um... Well, from Mike's, I this is one of the few things I feel confident talking about from having done a lot of sales. And one of it is I feel bad criticizing, but body language. Like every person who's taken a communications 101 class knows that 70% of how we communicate is body language. 25% is voice tone. Only 5% is the words we are conveying. And yet we spend so much time focusing on making sure that our verbal communication is completely airtight and very little focusing on voice tone and body language. 
And it's harder for me to make a direct like critique because each person is individualized in this case. But my biggest suggestion would be either take a martial arts or take a dance class. And for voice tone, just start doing karaoke or singing in the shower. <laughs> like <laughs> that one's the easiest because if you just experiment with it, when you feel comfortable, the voice is a beautiful instrument. I love rap music for that reason. So yeah, we should mention that as one of your credentials that you're a, semi-professional rapper um i am trying to work on an album right now yeah so cool <laughs> see i i i don't know i i you know i mentioned i've been a bit more confident the last couple of years but i started <laughs> to figure out how to like actually sing and dance in front of people i think i'm still gun shy from being a, a shy little kid um but i think i like that point because inadvertently i've been doing something similar to some different approaches so um you know, whether or not the numbers of 5% are your words and that sort of thing add up, the, the idea that, like, yes, you are communicating a lot through your body language and your tone, um, I don't think those are deniable. And, uh, you know, even in, I think this is something that, like, rationalists know if they've read, like, Robin Hansen's new book. Uh, um, Elephant in the Brain. Thank you, I was blanking on it. I've got it right here. I was going to pull it out and figure out what it was. Um, yeah, so uh, the, I think the first chapter uh so like the first third of the book is like setting up a case for why signaling theory is plausible and why the elephant in the brain like uh metaphor makes a lot of sense and then the last two thirds are like examples from every from just daily life and one of them is communication and uh people like i think people know that like higher body language and your tone conveys stuff people know that that's a big deal but like maybe it's it's weird. It's like failing to take a step. So it's one thing to just, like we talked about earlier, um, it's one thing just to just know that, oh yeah, this this is a thing. And then another to say, okay, well, how do I actually improve if I want to be listened to um, or, or make an impact or something? So what I've been doing at work is I kind of just, bought, I not necessarily copy, but I mimic in my own style the, like, the tone and body language of people that seem well, really well respected there. Um, and so I don't think I do it enough where anyone's like, oh, he's obviously ripping him off. But when I'm trying to make like an actual point, like to my boss or to my coworkers, I sort of put on a different tone that I'm like knowingly doing. Because when this guy that I'm thinking of talks that way, people listen. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily the same thing as like deliberate practice. I don't think I've done that. But just making it an effort to be aware of the fact that, hey, um, people will receive my message more than like just maybe me making a compelling argument. They need more than that. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe part of the, the fallback or like the not fallback, the, the failure to engage there is that especially, you know, for us online nerds, almost all of the discourse there is your, your actual content of your message. Right. Um, if I'm, read, if, I'm, if I'm writing a couple paragraphs, it doesn't matter if I'm slouching in my chair or not, right? Um, so that could be part of it. Um, but, I mean, almost all of us interact with some people in real life. And if you're, you know, hunched and shy when you're engaging, you know, there's social anxiety and stuff. But if you can find a way to overcome that, which is worth trying to actually do rather than just like, you know, for whatever shortcoming you have if you can find a way to engage and solve it dude go for it right um so identifying your shortcomings and not being afraid to stare at them i think is one big step that you can make and then you find things like 
you know, take an improv class to improve your ability to like dynamically engage in a conversation or something. Toastmasters is a very well-respected nationally known organization. Um, I have a lot of friends and family who've gone through them and you will become a really good public speaker. And it's not a skill to be trivialized. The ability to command a large group of people to pay attention to you and to take you seriously and to like thoughtfully engage with you is powerful. Yeah. You know, we should have had Enosh on for this because I know that he's done more walking the walk than I have. And he's also been walking that walk longer. But uh, I know that he did Toastmaster lecture or Toastmaster speeches a few years ago. And I think it was deliberately a thing to like get more confident at public speaking. And that'll make me more confident in like addressing people to get my point across. Um, and it's, and it's not as bad as people think it is. Like, I was always a very extroverted person, and I want to make it clear, because I know there are people who are naturally introver introverted who are listening to this, who are thinking, talking in front of a group of strangers sounds like hell. And I do not blame them at all, because sometimes it actually is. But the important part to remember is, unless... You are on an island of cannibals who will eat you. The worst possible thing that can happen is that they will politely applaud you and then snicker a little bit and then forget it after the next bad speech that someone else gives. Right. And, you know, that was like this realization I had, like, in high school. I was a pretty socially shy kid. And, um, I mean, I, I still was kind of overcoming that last, you know, 10 years too. But the uh, I had, like... I had articulated to myself what's called spotlight bias without knowing the name of it, which is basically where you walk around and this is, you know, every, every, uh, you know, pubescent teenager thinking that everybody's paying a ton of attention to you. And, you know, if your shirt's not tucked in or, you know, you've got a zit or something, everyone's going to remember and they're going to, you know, it's going to be seared into their memory forever and they're going to judge you. But all it took was sort of like just this kind of third person view. And for me to realize that I don't do that to anybody else. What makes me so special? Why would anyone be paying any extra attention to me? And man, the like the anxiety of talking and stuff really falls away a bit after that. I mean, just just I guess recognizing that like you know you're probably you know you might be above average in niceness, but you might not you might be roughly average. And so if you're not running around hating on people for you know stammering during a, a talk or you know failing to reach the end of a sentence articulately, then they're not going to do the same thing for you either, right? And here's the thing. You may very well encounter someone in the bottom 10% of niceness who's going to be a jerk, but that's actually the moment that you're going to be judged by. And it's really easy to just hold the moral upper ground and just like gracefully say, I tried my best. You're not the one speaking. And like, that's one of those things that I think a little bit of, preparation and practice really helps with like dealing with the people who will be jerks is never going to be comfortable, but having a plan for it before it happens means that you immediately lose a lot of your stress. I think that's one of the reasons I, I really enjoy and have a lot of respect for like stand up comics. Um, Cause you're up there kind of making a fool of yourself saying silly shit. And if it's not well received or if you got a dick, if you got, let me be more articulate. If it's not well received and you've got somebody being rude in the audience, um, you know, it's really easy to get disarmed from that. And uh, it takes like an, an extra skill to have a witty comeback to shut down a heckler. 
Um, and, you know, like those, that's the situation where you're hitting the bottom 10% of niceness kind of people, or they just think that's the acceptable way to engage at a, at a comedy show or something. But, uh, I always find that to be the dumbest thing you could possibly do. Stand up? Because literally, unless it is amateur night, this is a person who has made it their life decision to be funny. And you're going to try to out-funny them at their place of work. Right, yeah. This, like, I've, I've never seen heckling go well. That's all I've got to say. Maybe at amateur night you could get away with it, but nowhere else. Yeah, I mean, you got to think, too, the, the audience is on the comic side. Right. So you've got to you've got to be really confident that you're going to make a damn good point or be really, really funny to uh, or be very drunk. Yeah. And and I have an embarrassing moment with John Mulaney at Comedy Works a couple of years ago that uh, <laughs> John Mulaney is one of my favorite stand of comics. He had a, a Netflix special called uh, New in Town that my girlfriend and I were a big fan of. And then he was out touring, kind of demoing his next show, The Comeback Kid, which is also on Netflix now. And. It, the, comment, the, the club I went and saw him at was a small club and like there's a lot of audience interaction and stuff and you know being a big fan sitting really close to the stage I like I engaged on something and he immediately just like dropped his funny facade and he like he turns to me and like you know he treats me like a heckler and I completely get in hindsight that was all my fault because the the audience engagement that he had been doing before was everything that he initiated and you know, me just kind of wanting to be a part of it was like, oh, if I say something, I can be involved. And, you know, there's also a two-drink minimum at the bar or at the comedy shows, so um, somewhat of a lightweight. <laughs> but uh, I feel like as long as you didn't continue after that point, you're probably fine. Oh, no. That was actually – so that was the funny thing about it was I tried to disengage immediately oh, because God. I realized <laughs> – oh, no, it's good. Uh, what happened was I realized okay. immediately, like, oh, I fucked up. This is on me. I shouldn't have said anything. I'm being an asshole. And I kept trying to say, I was like, no, no, I, I, you know, sorry, I didn't, you know, I don't want to. And he's like, no, no, let's talk about it. And I'm like, let's not, I'm sorry. Um, so he, he kept going for it longer than I, than I wanted to. But again, that, again, you know, that was my bad. I realized that my conduct wasn't, it was also like, I think my first time like seeing a celebrity comic that, you know, at a show that was like close enough to interact with. Um, so, you know, I was excited and stupid, but. Speaking of how easily it is to be just completely slammed by a comic if they're perceiving you to be a heckler, yeah, I've got personal experience there. So, but all that aside, it's all this comes down to the idea that there are very low-hanging fruit that I think if each person in this community took it upon themselves to say, I have the resources and applying the sequences and the knowledge of this community has helped my life a lot. Maybe I'm an oddity, but I don't think so. Like, I don't think I'm that much better or more clever or anything. So if this is true, imagine a world where every single person who like you talk to is at least a little bit curious, like, Oh, you're doing that rationality thing. I've been seeing waves about that. Like, that's not a crazy goal to achieve in five to seven years, but it's something that we as a community could engage in, and the potential returns are unknowably high. 
Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, the, I feel like the bar is pretty unknowably high there, too. You know, like I said, people aren't walking around like, oh, my God, you're a scientist. That's so cool. Um, I do feel like, you know, no matter how, I don't know, you're right. I guess on one level, it's one thing to say, I know all this cool stuff, and I think it helped my life a little bit. And here's, like, my vague explanations for why I think I'm doing better now than I was five years ago. And, so, and the other, you know, the... <clears throat> I think what you're envisioning is somebody, you know, who, who makes huge strides in their life and people are like, holy shit, how'd you do it? It's like, oh, well, let me tell you. Um, and that sounds appealing. I just, I, I just have no idea how to get there. You know, talking about it more could help. I don't even, th I don't think it's even huge strides, though those are possible. That's kind of why I like Tim Ferriss. He uses real good scientific examples to prove that those huge strides are at least theoretically possible. But the more important thing is that consistent strides and smart ways of trying to do improvements in yourself that stick. We have the data and we can make a community that holds ourselves accountable. Maybe this is idealistic and I have no right to impose on anyone else. But if we want to say that we're trying to raise the sanity waterline, but we're not at even putting in 10% effort to meeting people where they are to help re live, like help pull them up essentially. And that's what doing all this socializing knowledge is. It's learning the basics and the nuances of how to engage with people to get them where you're at. Then we should stop pretending that we care about it. Huh? Like if, if that's not a goal and it's not act like a thing we want to do, that's fine. Like that doesn't have to be, an espoused goal of individuals or the community, but it's something I hear talked about a lot, but yet I very rarely see rationalists trying to go out and engage with the public, even like on a personal level or usually even on the big level. Most of the time on the big level, it's them talking to scientists or skeptics or people in related fields. That's not, not where most of America is. It's not where most of the world is. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, I, sorry, I'm, I'm feeling sort of somewhat scatterbrained. Like, uh, I have that effect on people. <laughs> well, it's, I think it's a bit you. It's like I said, it's a bit I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming up, coming down from something and I'm feeling slightly under the weather, but the, uh, um, like, yeah, you're right. The rationalist community talks a lot about like kind of just bemoaning the fact that, you know, most people don't care about this sort of thing. But and if there and if there is, you know, I'm not I'm not super literate in a lot of the, the online community. Um, you know, I, I read a handful of blogs once in a while. But so far as I know, and I'm sure someone, if anyone knows this, you know, do send a link um, to the blog or the article that talks about this. But there isn't a lot of systematized like, all right, how do we actually do this? Rather than just talk about like why isn't this, why isn't the sanity waterline higher or you know. Um, you know, raising the problem. How do we, you know, what are ways that we've looked at to actually get this better? It sounds like the kind of thing that CIFAR would do, the Center for Applied Rationality. Um, they're, they're, so far as I know, their goal is more like actually articulating through like, you know, small studies, like which approaches to teaching rationality actually work. Um, but I can see them down the road getting into like, all right, which, which ways of conveying the awesomeness of rationality to lay people actually work? Um, but yeah, I wonder why this isn't like a, a more attacked problem. Um, it's 
you know, like I said, it's the kind of thing that we care about and that people talk about, but why aren't we doing more? Um, you know, like in my life, the, you know, like we've been doing this podcast for two years because like I, partly it was that when you go to, you know, the, the podcast, uh, store on, you know, uh, on your, whatever you call it, podcast app, like my, why am I blanking on this? The Apple one, I think it's just called podcasts. Um, any type in less wrong, nothing comes up. So like, uh, I was like, all right, well, I like listening to this stuff, you know, rationally speaking only comes out every two weeks and it takes me 40 minutes to listen to. So like, what else have I got? Um, so I was like, all right, well, you know, you know, you mentioned doing what you can with the resources you have. And I was like, well, I've got time and you know, microphones aren't that expensive. And, uh, let's, let's just give this a shot. So I think, I don't know if this is doing anything to raise the sanity waterline or not, but it was my like attempts to do some outreach and more like, like I said, it was more kind of like self-serving. Well, not self-serving in the sense that like it did anything for me, but I imagined I wasn't the only person who wanted to, you know, have something kind of like this out there. And so while I don't personally get the fun of listening to it, uh, other people do. So I believe the term, I believe the term for what you did in the entrepreneurial community would be scratching your own itch. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of that term, but I like it a lot. Um, yeah, so, you know, my itch is, well, does that apply? Because, I mean, so my itch isn't really scratched because I don't get any more rational stuff to listen to because I don't listen to the podcast. Uh, I mean, I'll occasionally listen to one. I listen to ones with, like, guests and stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I, since I was there for the conversation, I don't get the, the fun of, like, downloading it every two weeks and, you know, hearing it come out. Um, but at the very least, I'm, I'm hoping that it scratches the itch for, you know, the handful of people who wanted to hear it, so... Well, and it's also giving you the opportunity to talk to people. Like I heard your third episode when you guys put that up with your interview with Eliezer Yudkowsky and you guys have interviewed Robin Hanson twice. So even if it didn't give you more podcasts to listen to, it gave you the opportunity to engage with more rationalist communication. That's true. And that was really the goal. And that, that's, that's actually a good way to think about it. And you're, you're right. Like, um, you know, part of, the way that I've been trying to apply these skills to my daily life, like I said, is just like asking myself articulate questions. Okay, here's what you want. How can you get there? And, you know, what sort of things would make you happy? And I had this realization a couple weeks ago that like younger Steven would be pretty jealous and happy for current Steven. Um, like, you know, I, when I, every time Brian Dunning's on the show, I kind of fanboy at him and tell him I've listened to a show for 10 years. Um, but man, if I had told, you know, 20 year old Steven that, you know, Hey, down the road, you're going to be, he's going to be on your podcast a couple of times. I'm like, oh, that's pretty exciting. I don't know what to say about that. Um, so, I mean, I think for me, I'm just trying to think of like, this sounds like a lot of self-patting on the back. More, it's like I'm happy to share that I'm being a happy person right now, trying to, to signal the fact that rationality has made my life better and to get more people involved by telling them, telling them how happy I am. Uh, but the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the other side of that is just like, you know, and that, like, it sounds so obvious. There's some disconnect between like being able to just like hear a piece of advice and be like, oh yeah, you know, that makes sense. But like then to actually do it. So like for me, this is where, this is where I actually am going to pull in a weird reference of Eastern Tantra. So there I'm sure you've heard the terms yoga and tantra before, right? Let's pretend I haven't. So, a lot of times when you hear yoga, you imagine a lot of people doing weird stretches and poses over mats. 
and Tantra is almost always in reference to sex. What they really represent in Hindu religion and that uh, the parts that I've understood is that yoga is about philosophy. Its goal is to achieve quote unquote enlightenment through body and soul like synergizing for lack of a better term. And they have these like poses you go through and these big lofty thoughts. But Tantra has a different approach. The whole of Tantra is technique. That's what that word means in the original script. And the idea was, instead of giving you a philosophy to understand the universe, we're going to tell you to do this meditation or technique because the act of doing it will reveal the answer that you want. And I think that this is one of the things that we don't have. I believe there should be a compendium of texts that are essentially practical applications of the sequences in your daily life that we can give people before we give them the sequences. Because a lot of times I think people learn backwards way better. Do something and then learn why it works. And that's, that, that ties in great. The, the last thing I was going to say on that was I think, you know, again, it sounds like one of those hollow pieces of advice, but it, you just really got to try it. Like the thing that I think stops most people from doing anything is they never actually try. They look at the problem and say, that looks too hard. I'm not going to go for it. Um, or there's no way I can do that. But, you know, if it's if the investment cost isn't too high to, you know, if it's going to ruin your life to try, then maybe don't risk it. But, um, you know, it's the thing that stops people from doing things, you know, 100% of the time is not trying it. And, uh, you know, like this is maybe the another example from my life of, again, it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back a lot. I'm just trying to, to actualize your advice of or your 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 suggestion of, of talking about how this has improved, you know, my life to motivate people to give it a shot. But um, let's see, what year is it? 2018. So in like 2015, I'd never written a line of code and don't get me wrong. I still suck. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm new to it, but I had this like mental model that anyone who could do anything with computers was some savant who had been writing games since they were in diapers. And this was like a, a black box of just this obscure domain of magic knowledge that only super geniuses had access to. And then I met people who, you know, were programmers. And they're like, why aren't you doing this? You're doing all these stupid jobs. I'm like, that's a good question. I always thought it was too hard. And they're like, oh, no, it's not that bad. Check this out. And they sent over a couple links. And I tried, a, you know, like an online tutorial on Python called Automate the Boring Stuff. Um, it's free online if you Google Automate the Boring Stuff. Um, and the, the takeaway was like, oh, this is human learnable by an average person like me, I should be doing something like this. This is fun. And I, and it's not this impossible thing like I thought it was. And so, uh, you know, I decided to just go gung ho at it and quit my job, went to a boot camp, and uh, for like 50 hours a week for 19 weeks and got some, some foundation in there. And boom, here I am happy and my life's better and I like my job. So like, it's just, it's interesting what making an actual effort to just try something can do. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that you drop 16K on a boot camp and, you know, quit your job as the first step. But, like, if something sounds hard and, like, oh, I could never do that, just go give it a shot at a low investment first. You know, for most things, there's free stuff online or low entries to, to trying stuff out. And who knows what you'll find. It could be really easy and fun. I usually go with uh, if it costs me less than a date with a girl I think is cute or substitute person you're interested in then I should do it because I'm more interested in myself than I am in anyone I'm dating. 
and I should be if I want to continue growing as a person. So if I can't even take myself out for a date, <laughs> then <laughs> I'm doing something wrong. That's a, that's a nice way to put about it, and it puts you in a good position to yourself. I think that's important. Um, and and uh, you know, I think you brought up two really solid things that people can implement right away, which is start asking yourself whenever you see something, what is the littlest cost of investment I can use to get involved and at least get my feet wet? And two, start writing down times you've successfully like overcome or defeated something that you thought was harder than it was in actuality. And then next time you get intimidated, because you've written down so many of these, they will be the first thing that pop into mind. So the next time you are faced with something and your first instinct is to say, ah, oh, maybe that's like too hard for me, you will have already made this subconscious process where your brain will make a list of all the times you were wrong. And it wasn't too hard for you. It was actually pretty easy. That's awesome. I like that a lot. From a personal example for me, I was terrible with money. And I'm, if I'm being completely honest, I'm still not great. But being involved in the rationality community, first of all, forced me to be honest with myself because the longer I was had that blind elephant in my brain about my inability to handle it, the worse the problem got. So it helped me confront it, first of all. But then I started to ask myself, what are the minimums I need to satisfy my wants and how can I reduce all money intake? And I approached it from a rational way. And because I had lost my defensiveness about that problem myself, I've moved in a much better direction. And I have my first uh, property in Florida that I'm airbnb starting next week. And we're looking at buying another one in Colorado. So I might see you again sooner than I thought in the next like year or two. So things are starting to really improve for me in that way. And that was not natural. I am not good with money by default at all. <laughs> but you recognize the weakness and said, all right, how do I actually, you know, first of all, not flinch away from acknowledging the problem, but how do I go about fixing it? That's really cool, man. That's awesome. And, and I think that a big part of that was being epistemologically rational about myself because my mental map could never be accurate. I could never really make accurate and good decisions about myself if I wasn't willing to look at this big spot in myself. That's when Robin Hansen's elephant becomes visible, when it has to stand in contrast against reality. Yeah, I like that. That's a good way to think about it, you know, to uh, just focus and kind of square away at the problem and force yourself to look at it. Um, and, you know, all the, the caveats aside that we've been talking too long to get into of like, you know, how do you, uh, how do you recognize there's a problem if you can't see it, that sort of stuff. But just, you know, noticing areas of non-optimalness and say, all right, what can I do to improve? Especially if it's not that hard. And I like your idea of saying, you know, if the investment cost is less than a date, because, you know, what's less than a date, you know, a couple books or something. Um, you know, maybe uh, a date is a few hours, so maybe it has nothing to do with money, but you can invest like two hours to watch like a lecture on something instead of like goofing off. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that a lot. I'm going to keep that in mind. I am pro laziness. Don't get me wrong. I am, too. <laughs> I think laziness <laughs> breeds efficiency. <laughs> so if I'm going to try to improve myself or recommend others improve themselves, I tell them to do it in the laziest way possible. 
because then it sticks. Especially, yeah, you know, just with the obvious kind of point there that like if it's not that hard, you'll be more likely to do it. And I like that a lot. <laughs> there is one other topic. I know we probably have to end soon, but there was one other fun, silly-ish topic I wanted to bring up, if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, go nuts. I'm more conscientious of your time. I know it's like 10 o'clock there, so. And you said you have some tests tomorrow for something that you studied for all day. Uh, statics. Yeah. Uh, that's another thing rationality helped me out with. Once my finances got in order, I asked myself, if I applied all of my efficiency to my business, how much spare time could I get? And what could I do that would be the most effective good? And that's how I landed on my goal of going back to school and developing a mixture of like real estate developing. But that's another tangent for another day. Well, that other day will definitely come. I want to talk more about that too. But what was your funny thing that you wanted to get to? So... I think that a good way for a lot of rationalists to realize the difference in themselves between when they are being rational and when they are rationalizing afterwards is to engage in acting and play. And the reason I say this is that when you, I'm sure you've heard the analogy, fish probably don't have a word for the ocean. I haven't, but I, and I like it. And part of that is I think humans and our consciousness swims in our personality. That is like who we are. And we move around from focus to focus in there, but we never really think about what it is, like what our personality actually is, because it's part of what we associate with our identity. One of the things I've done for about a decade now is I'm a LARPer, also known as live action role playing. In fact, I run a game here on the East Coast called Adventures Wanted. Slight plug. <laughs> I, encourage, um, I encourage guest plugs. Well, there'll be a section for that at the end, too. That sounds awesome. But um, one of the reasons I recommend LARPing to a lot of introverts and rationalists is it gives you a completely safe space to be a different person. And the act of that is imagine a version of yourself who is, okay, Steven, imagine someone who is almost exactly like you in capabilities, but is evil. <laughs> and then play that person? Yeah. And here's the thing that you will discover. You can have, and there are moments when you truly forget your role playing, and that's a lot of the greatest acting experiences as well. When you will start subconsciously rationalizing like that person, and when that happens, and then you go out a game and the game's over for the night and you go to bed and you think about it, you're going to have the ability now to like step outside of yourself and look at your personality because you've done it with this fake personality you've created and say, huh, I wasn't actually being rational there. I was just rationalizing. Like the more different personality spaces you allow yourself to occupy and explore and play around with, the more you discover how much of your personality is fluid and what parts of it are truly like set in stone. And that helps you a lot because. So I don't know if you've heard the radio lab, but they did a radio lab where they tested this and people who put on lab coats were more like got 10% more questions right on a science test than when they didn't wear the lab coat. 
I hadn't heard that, but that sounds really interesting. And if I'm, I want to make, I want to paraphrase this to make sure I understood it correctly. Uh, at least part of it was that when you're playing a role and then you find yourself rationalizing as that person, uh, you notice what that feels like and you might be able to train grooves in your mind to notice when you're doing that, when you're not playing a role. And so, yes. okay. Thank you for making that eloquent because I was kind of going about that circuitously, but it's a, it's a way of practicing that third person perspective on your own cognitive process in a way that's fun most of the time. That's nuts. That's awesome. I like that a lot. I've never tried anything like that. I've thought about like improv classes. It's just one of those things where I've been putting it off forever. Improv, like acting will definitely do the same thing to you, especially if you play a role for a very long time or go through the practices to the point where everything becomes subconscious. Now, do you think that for like, you know, introverted people who really just aren't ready to try and tackle something like, uh, uh, um, improv classes or something like that. You know, I think another way to role play someone who you aren't. Um, so, like, whenever I play video games, that like allow the character to choose if they're going to be a good or bad person. I always choose a good person because I'm like, all right, what would I do in this situation? Uh, so, you know, like, only to see what would happen to like I blow up Megaton in Fallout Three, um, but then I loaded from another save because I felt bad. Um, <laughs> So I wonder if a way to practice this at home, if you don't feel like getting out, or if you don't feel like ready to get out and do it in front of people, would be like to play a, a video game if you're already playing video games. Yeah, I guess I'm throwing this at you. You tell me if you think this would work. You play a video game like Bioshock or Fallout or whatever, where you can be a bad person if you want, and it, like you play the role that you're not usually inclined to do. And so then, you know, when you're making the decision, all right, do I harvest this little sister and kill her, or do I let her go and save her? Um, you know, if you choose the one that you don't usually go for and then you're rationalizing for your character, could that develop some of the same grooves or do you think that's too easy? I think it might work if it's an MMO, but I think you almost need humans or some kind of complex, not like two or three choices of options to really figure out where your character is creative and when they weren't. Like one of the LARPing things that helped me was my very first character uh, I was playing at a... Do you ever see the old YouTube video of a guy going, Lightning Bolt! Lightning Bolt! I haven't. It's an old LARP video. I played at that game. <laughs> Legends role-playing in Massachusetts. I wanted to play the most evil, conniving character I could imagine. So I invented a lawyer banker. <laughs> in a fantasy world with elves and undead necromancers and stuff. And I played him because it was about as opposite from me as I could imagine. And it was kind of scary to realize how quickly and how effectively I started to just win in that mindset. But it also gave me a level of confidence because I was now like running my own little business, essentially, in this game. I started the first bank and did all these other silly things but they were definitely self-motivated and engaged. And I was like, well, if I could do that there, why can't I do it in real life? Like, I could at least try to do the first step, see where it's different. That's really fun. I like that a lot. And I think you're right that the social aspect weighs a lot because it's, you know, uh, like we talked about with Robin Hanson a couple episodes ago, you know, a large part of, like, where your conscientiousness and self-image comes from is, like, in relation to talking to other people or interacting with them anyway. 
And so if you're if you're doing it at home on a not online video game, then you know you're not getting really any of that feedback because no one's actually judging you or even actually judging the character you're pretending to be. One of the things I want to bring up for people who are more introverted is LARPs also offer you an opportunity to recontextualize your shyness. Um, one of the examples that I'm thinking of is there was a female player at our game who is, like, in my opinion, almost socially crippling anxiety and shyness. She is a lovely young woman, and I'm very happy she's my friend. And when she started playing our game, she didn't really want to talk to anyone, so she decided to become an assassin. In six years, she became the most terrifying person in our game. <laughs> we, I have still have nightmares, because she, out of game, learned how to walk through a leafy forest without making a single noise. That's awesome. And... It is very terrifying. And, and so you can embrace because, the things so, that you have, you know, difficulty with and just, you know, make that part of your character. I like that a lot. That's really cool. And by the end of her character arc, she was like making speeches in front of the whole town and leading groups because she had realized that being quiet wasn't a hindrance. It was just part of who she was. But she also learned when it wasn't appropriate, and she had to, she was able to figure those things out in a safe context of a game. And now she's been past that character for a few years. She's married. She has a very happy life, and I don't think she has any of those issues anymore. I might be wrong, but she seems much better now. That's awesome. That's really cool. I still have nightmares. <laughs> So many nightmares. I think you're onto something about <laughs> talking about like actualizing these skills, making them seem really appealing. You know, to anyone who wants to better themselves, they hear about somebody's approach to solving one of these problems. You know, whether it's a, a social uh, problem you're having or a work problem or something, and you know, just hearing about awesome things that people have done make it sound really attractive. I like that a lot, and you know, I've gotten excited just hearing about most of these. Right? That's awesome. Uh, let me think. Uh, we're closing up here on two hours. Is there anything else you wanted to to get out real quick, or you know, uh, any plugs or anything for sure? The only plug I would have, besides my rap album, I'll let you guys know when that comes out. You guys will get the first demo. Solid. But uh, besides that, uh, if there are any rationalists near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia, I'd like to do a meetup. And if anyone's interested in our game, it's located in Southeast Pennsylvania. Adventures Wanted Role Playing is our website. Uh, I'm David Youssef. I am a realtor. So on the off chance that anyone wants to buy a house in beautiful Amish country, <laughs> I'm here to help. Awesome. Um, well, thanks for coming on and chatting, man. I had a good time. Uh, I hope that you know it was a valuable use of your time, and I hope people thought that we did okay without Inyash here to. Uh, give us a third voice, but Rang. um, wrangle us in. Well, I think I think that's one of the reasons we drive so well is that we kind of do a good job of wrangling each other in. I think. Um, but anyway, no, this was great. I'd love to have you back on at some point. Uh, I feel like there's we barely scratched the surface and we didn't talk about any of the. Uh, well, we only talked about one of the exciting things that we talked about when we got together for drinks when you were here in Denver. So I know that there's a lot of cool stuff left to talk to you about. Um, so. I appreciate it. I'm very flattered and I'm honored to be another guest of this show that's made me happy so many times. Oh man, I I appreciate that. I still don't really know how to respond to when people say stuff like that, but I guess I'm I'm really happy to hear that, but I feel like it's weird that I'm 
playing part of that role. Uh, so to quickly transition away from that, I will thank uh, this week's or this episode's uh, Patreon supporter, uh, Christopher James, for uh, helping keep this podcast alive and, uh, you know, keeping uh, the servers up. And I don't know, your support means a lot to us. And Good job, Christopher. Yeah. And we can't let an episode go by without thanking Kyle. He's the one who makes this sound palatable. Uh, as I said before, all he can do is fix the audio. He can't fix what we talk about. So, um, uh, Kyle, you're the greatest. Kyle, thank Kyle you. Moore, thank you very much. I remember the old episodes. Oh. I remember the old episodes before you were there. Oh, God, me too. Those were the worst. When I tell people, if they hear about the show, they got to meet up and they want to check it out. I say, start with one of the newer ones with like a guest. Uh, don't jump back to the first few. Um, we were still finding our sea legs there. But, uh, you know, they're, they're up there for uh, to be immortalized in history so if you want to go back and see how bad I mean, this was they were good enough to hook me i don't know what that says but they were good enough to hook me well i won't make any judgments about what that says <laughs> um <laughs> all right david well thanks a lot i really appreciate talking to you